Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. This is going to be the story of Gideon, and anybody who knows about the story of Gideon, you know that this involves some things like uh, the, the famous army of 300, going at great odds against the Midianites. You know it involves, people think about the fleece that Gideon put out before the Lord. We'll be covering all of those things. So let me just give you a a little bit of the history so maybe you can triangulate this whole thing in your brain and figure out where we are. And even though Joshua, some 150 years previously, had successfully led Israel into the land of Canaan, which was their promised land, which while Israel was in Egypt had been occupied by a lot of people that that land was not going to belong to. Joshua was able to take Israel from the wilderness and cross over into Canaan and start possessing it and conquering people as they went. There he began reclaiming the land for his people. And about 150 years later, after that time Joshua took them in there, Israel found themselves to be severely oppressed by Jabin, king of Canaan. And this oppression went on for about 20 years. This, this was not the way it was supposed to be. You go into the land of Canaan and you conquer the land squatters and you uh, are free. It's your land. But it wasn't working out quite that way. 20 years of severe oppression by the king of Canaan. Then they turned to uh, the judge at that time because at this point uh, Israel did not have a king yet. And this was during that era when the Bible says every man did what was right in his own eyes. A very strange uh, uh, era for them. And God appointed, sent judges to at least settle disputes among the people. Uh, And among those judges uh, was Deborah. Now, if anybody has any problem with God using women in ministry, then they, they don't understand how God has been quite willing to use women uh, for his purpose and his glory at distinct and, and various times in the history. Uh, Deborah is the judge, and a man called Barak comes to, uh, to Deborah and says, what are we going to do? We're under siege by Jabin, king of Canaan, and we, we need an answer. And Deborah, speaking with the power and the authority of the Lord, says, well, we have a plan. God has given us a plan. You assemble an army and take them to Mount Tabor, and there God has promised that he's going to give you victory over Jabin and his captain. And remember, the captain's name that served under Jabin is a man named Sisera. Now, this gets to be a very interesting story. I don't know how many of you remember Sisera. But Sisera was quite a a military leader and and kept the edge over the Israelites for 20 years successfully. But with the plan of the Lord, the Lord says we're going to throw off the shackles and and the uh, uh, oppression of the king of Canaan and you'll be free. 
take your army, go to Mount Tabor. You'll meet the army there. Barak agreed, but he said to Deborah, just one thing, you have to go with me. Now, that doesn't make the general look very brave to say, I'll go, but I want you to go and hold my hand. And Deborah agrees, but he, she views uh, Barak as being rather a coward for insisting that he be accompanied by a woman. Therefore, because he did that, Deborah prophesies and says, God will give you the victory, but the credit is going to go to a woman. And you have to understand in that culture that to that man that would have been very humiliating. The two armies clash, and, and Jabin's army, as prophesied and promised, they suffer this devastating defeat. And Sisera, Jabin's captain, finds himself virtually alone. His army is defeated, they've run, and he's all by himself. And the Bible says he gets down off his chariot and he runs. He comes upon a little encampment. And these people who are Kenites, he believes the Kenites to historically and always been allies and friends to the Canaanites. So he pulls into the little camp and believing these people will give him refuge. There's a woman that finds him and says, well, come on into my tent. I'll protect you. And so Sisera goes into the tent of a woman named Jael, passes out from sheer exhaustion, and when he's deep asleep, Jael takes a tent peg and goes over and places it on his head and takes a mallet and drives the tent peg through his head and kills him. And the moment that Jael nails Sisera's head to the ground... She virtually at that moment, single-handedly, brought 40 years of peace to Israel. And we don't know what all happened during that 40 years of peace. But in Judges chapter 6, it starts off like this. The Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. Because of the rebellion... The Lord gave them over now to the Midianites to be oppressed for seven years. Let's read a description of the time of that suffering. It says in the second verse of Judges, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountains, clefts, caves, and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites plant, planted their crops... The Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. And they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it, and Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out for help from the Lord. When the Israelites cried out unto the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you did not listen to me. 
So you see them going from captivity to freedom, right back into captivity, simply because they were disobedient and not listening to the guidelines God had set for them. So God reminds them in that last little bit of the scripture reading, he said, here's your problem. And he starts off by saying, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, 13 times from Exodus to Judges, we read of God communicating to his people and reminding them, I brought you out of Egypt. He keeps going back to that because they keep forgetting. Or at least they don't act like they remember. They have lost their gratitude. People, don't forget where God has brought you from. You've got a testimony, many of you here today. And one of the saddest things I have seen is when people have made a good start for the Lord and God has blessed them. But somewhere along the line, they drop out and they go back. And it's like, don't you remember where God brought you from? What you used to be? And how he blessed you, how he delivered you, how he spared you, how he set you free, how he healed you. Don't forget where you came from. It's so important. Then he tells them, secondly, in summary, I delivered you out of the hands of your oppressors. I even gave you their land, demonstrating how much he had blessed them. He said, I promised that you would never have to fear the Amorites. And in spite of all that, you have forsaken me. Where's God brought you from? Don't forget it. Maybe some of you have come from much, much more deplorable circumstances than others. And maybe, maybe some of you don't have such a shameful background. But, you know, to those who have been forgiven much... They have such, so much greater gratitude. And so I have a hard time probably really, truly relating to some people on how far God has brought them. When people challenge me, you know, when did you get saved? I find that hard to answer. Now, how many of you here today know the day? That you got saved. How many of you? See, now there's some of you here. How many of you just kind of remember an era when you got saved? I can't tell you the day. Well, see, most of you, probably most hands. How many of you here, like me, don't have a clue when you got saved? <laughs> see, there's some of us. I see some of the ladies. We just grew up in it, didn't we? Osmosis. We were born Christian. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of an odd thing. I used to go to full gospel businessmen's fellowships. And one of the little nifty little things that they did just for fun is they said, we're going to sing. It was on a Sunday somebody touched me. Must have been the hand of the Lord. It was on a Monday. It was on a Tuesday. It was on a Wednesday. They, they sang seven verses because there's seven days of the week. And when it came your day of the week when you got saved, you're supposed to stand up. I always got nervous. I thought, I'm going to wait until most people stand up. I'm going to stand up with them. Because <laughs> I didn't have a day. I was missing that birthday. Spiritual birthday. 
well, my goodness, I, I grew up in a Christian home. We was taught to pray ever since we were young. I, I knew who God was. I knew what he, he expected of us, I- incrementally increasing in my knowledge of him, you know, uh, being very sensitive to the, the presence of the Lord in my life. Uh, even at three and four years old, there's uh, gnawing on the back of the pew. That's where I cut my teeth. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, baptizing the Holy Spirit at five years old. How does somebody baptize the Holy Spirit at five years old till the day they got saved? And how do you stand up as a person who's been saved at five years old and say, I want to thank the Lord for delivering me from a life of sin? I don't have the same testimony that some people have. But I do understand the struggles of living for God. I, I do understand the, the fleshly uh, temptations and desires. And I do understand grace as we're imperfect, all of us. And we need the grace of the Lord. But don't forget where you came from. Those of you who have had a much more checkered past than maybe I have. Don't forget where God has brought you from. There's a lot to be grateful for. And how can you walk away from saving grace who has waltzed into your life? And no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how nasty and no matter how perverse, when God comes and he says, you're forgiven, how can you ever forget that? It's gone. It's over. It's done. Now, it doesn't mean I want you to continue to, to have the, the angst and, and the conviction and, and feeling so defeated and oppressed because of what you used to be. I don't want you to be in bondage. You know, that goes. But you can't forget where he brought us from and what he has made us today. Now that's a little bit of Israel's story. I get into Gideon's story properly now. And first I want to talk about his calling. And un- under this heading of Gideon's story, there will be... I think five points here that all begin with the C because today's message is brought to you by the letter C and the number five. His calling. Gideon was threshing wheat by the wine press. Let me give you the significance of that. I just read you the scripture that tells you under the oppression of the Midianites, every time that the children of Israel would grow some crops, the Midianites were just mean enough to wait until they had a nice crop, then they'd come in and destroy it. It wasn't fun enough to keep them from planting. They wanted them to have some hope and then go in and dash their hopes. So it was becoming very frustrating that the Midianites would do this for them. They couldn't grow grapes, and so there was no vineyards that ever came to the point of harvest and production. Midianites made sure of that. So the wine press was deserted. And they had some wheat, and surely the Midianites would get the wheat as well. But Gideon gathered up some wheat and took it to the wine press where the Midianites would not think to look because they're thinking uh, no grapes, no wine, don't look there. So he took the wheat to the area of the wine press, and there he manually beat out the wheat with a rod smacking on it, and this was a very slow and laborious process, whereas typically they could take the wheat and spread it out and get their animals, their oxen, and they would trample it out and, and therefore threshing it uh, with high technology. 
But that would draw the noise of the animals and the, the place to do that would draw too much attention, uh, draw the Midianites to them. So he took it to the wine press and didn't use the oxen and he just took his rod and he's beaten on this. And not getting a lot of production out of it, but just enough to put some grain together and go home and bake some bread and his family would survive. It's a very pitiful situation we're reading here. <clears throat> and while he's there at the wine press, there's an angel. And I can refer this to, the, to this as the angel or as the Lord, as we eventually find out it was the Lord. Or if you want to talk about uh, theology here, theological terms, you could call this a theophany. Now, that's a, a word you want to try and use two or three times a week in your conversations. A theophany is a manifestation of one of the persons of the Godhead so that it becomes visible and apparent to people. And theophanies in the Old Testament, we typically believe the second person of the Trinity, who we now know as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this was a theophany, a manifestation of the Trinity, but it, it was called an angel in this story. So here the angel goes and sits under an oak tree and is watching Gideon thresh wheat in secret. And pretty soon he makes himself apparent to Gideon as Gideon notices this man watching him do his work. And the very first thing that the angel says, or any words that are spoken between the two, are spoken by the angel. And the angel says, or the Lord says, the Lord is with you. Courageous warrior. It doesn't quite fit the circumstances. This man is sneaking around and hiding from the Midianites. And the first thing the angel says is, the Lord is with you. And Gideon's going to ask for an explanation of that. Courageous warrior? Beating out wheat in private to hide from the enemy? Courageous warrior? But you see, God doesn't see what you see. He doesn't see what I see. He sees things about me I don't know about me. When God looks at Gideon and says, Courageous warrior, he is speaking potential in this man. Not what I see you are, but what I see you can be. And God can speak your potential to you. And I might not think myself to be able to do things, but God knows what I can do, especially when I'm plugged into Him. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This confuses Gideon. And this, this part about the Lord is with you, he wants an explanation. The scripture says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why is all this happening to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon's question is pretty standard. It still goes on today. 
The circumstances just don't seem to match God's promises. We see that throughout Scripture. God comes to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah, beyond the years of childbearing. And God saying, you're going to have a baby. And Sarah laughs in God's face. Because circumstances don't match the promises. For some reason, God enjoys doing that. He gets a big kick out of promising something that seems virtually impossible in our estimation. So here's Gideon's first objection. And see if we don't identify somewhat with this sometimes as we struggle with what God is promising for us. Objection number one. If the Lord is with us, why does this befall us? Or let's paraphrase that in a number of different ways that probably fits more our circumstance. You're blessed. Well, if I'm so blessed, you know, that's how it always starts out. Our skepticism. If I'm so blessed, why do I keep having all these troubles? Does that kind of generally hit where we are? Here's another if. Well, if Christ promised us joy unspeakable, why am I always so miserable? I think it was Charles Spurgeon that one time said, the joy of the Lord is so great and so powerful. If it ever lasted more than just a couple of seconds, we couldn't stand it. Here's another if. If God promised he would never leave us for, for, or forsake us, why do we feel so abandoned? Have you ever felt abandoned by God in spite of the fact that he said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you? Yeah, I understand, God. The promise doesn't match the circumstance. Why do I feel like the heavens are brass? Why do I feel like you are so far and distant from me? Why do I feel like I cannot contact you, cannot touch you? If we have the promise by his stripes we are healed, why can't we get over this sickness? If Jesus promised, ask anything in my name, I will do it, then why aren't my prayers getting answered? I just talked to a personal friend of mine who is going through a severe trial. As a matter of fact, it's been just a few months ago. I told you the story of his daughter losing her children to her husband who had separated from her, divorcing her, He went to Zimbabwe, took the children, and she does not have any contact with the children. You became so so touched by that story that we took up an offering, and you gave very generously to help in this. So I called him the other day. How are things going? Things are not going very well. They have spent some $100,000 trying to pay for their legal bills for a legal help in Zimbabwe to get a trial to get the kids back and still no no sign that the trials are are actually set he's mortgaged his house they're just about out of money and I listened to this because I wanted to call up him and I wanted to complain 
He's my sounding board. Every time I, I get a little frustrated, I know there's one person that understands, and I can call him up. So he said, well, I'll, uh, I'll make you a deal. He said, it's, it's two for one. You can give me two complaints, I give you one. And I said, well, you go first. And he told me what trouble they were going through. When he got done, I didn't have any problems. They vanished. And I told him so. I said, I called you to complain. I, I don't have any complaints. I, I'm, I'm totally dumbfounded. The struggles are going through. And here's something that he said. And just as you described all the trials that we're going through, he's coming into the last two or three or four or five years of his ministry. His church has gone from being a, a very robust church in a very small town of about 3,000 people, but a very good, strong church and had some part-time paid staff that, that was helping him out to where the economy hit. He lost all the contractors in his church, lost 50% of his congregation, lost so much revenue in his church. He now has to go out and find a job. He said, I'm thinking about going to Walmart and finding a job just so I can finish out three or four years in the ministry. And when I retire between uh, my retirement, and Social Security and everything, he said, all I have to do now is come up with $1,000 a month to be able to live. So he's describing how this has been so devastating to the entire family, emotionally, financially, but he came to this part. And he said, I have prayed for 25 years, and I've asked God for revival in my church and bring revival to my town, and it has not come. My church is smaller now than it was when I started does God not hear me? Does God not care? Does he not want revival in my church? Am I not worthy? And my heart just broke. Because it's not just him, but I think we all hit that tough spot in life. Where we say, God, don't you care? I'm not praying for a million dollars. I'm not praying for a limousine. I'm not praying for a mansion. I am praying for my healing, my wife's healing, my husband's healing, my children's salvation. Don't you care? We're praying, people, revival for Westside. Doesn't God want revival for Westside? Objection number two, and I don't want to leave that thought. It just kind of flows right on through. Gideon basically says, as I paraphrase it, it appears that our best days are behind us because I hear all these people talking about how great it used to be. They talk about the day that God brought Israel out of Egypt and all of these miracles that happened, and you can remember the miracles coming out of Egypt. The shoes wore like iron, manna in the desert, quail raining down from heaven, water from a rock, a pillar of fire, to guide them by night and a pillar of cloud to guide them by day. The parting of the Red Sea. The destruction of Pharaoh's army. On and on and on. The miracles that are flowing and the old people telling the tales that have been passed on from generation to generation. The oral tradition. And Gideon's looking around and saying, it doesn't look to me like the God of those people is anywhere around close to the people today. What what about this? As he's asking the angel. I, I want answers. Now that I've got you here. Got your attention. 
Why is it God did all those things for them and He doesn't do anything for us? Are the best days of Israel behind us? There are people here today that you have been through the history of Westside. We have a very unique situation here. Westside was listed as the fastest growing church in the entire United States, any denomination, had that distinction at one time. Didn't hold the distinction for long because that goes, jumps around to other churches. But when you're exploding from less than 100 people up to the height of the attendance here, the explosion was so sudden, so phenomenal, that we went in the record books. Some of you saw that. You were here. And the dynamic that went along with that. <clears throat> Every Sunday, the building being packed to capacity. The entire campus crawling with kids. You remember that. You, with, you lived it. You witnessed this phenomenon that very few ch- churches will ever get to see. But you saw it. You were there. You were part of it. And it can be really easy to sit here today... And look around and say, is it true? Are our best days behind us? Have we had our moment in the limelight and that's it? And everybody gets their 15 minutes of fame. And we've had ours and it's over. We feel a little bit like Gideon as you hear the great stories. But you're looking around and saying, why don't we see happening what we used to see happening? Is it really behind us? Do you sometimes feel like Gideon that you can tell the great stories about what used to be, but you have great doubts God is ever going to write another chapter to the book? Or in our personal case, Ann and I rode out the worst storm of our entire ministry career, enduring personal attacks and threats and hate mail and losing all but about 50 people in our church. And God turned that around and brought that church back to life, and it became the largest church in town. Things were hopping and popping, and we paid off the debt and money in the bank, and uh, people were showing up, new visitors, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and we're packing the place out on special occasions. And we look around, and Ann and I said, are our best days of ministry behind us? We get just that 15 minutes and that it? Or does God have something else? And you know, when you get to the point where you think that all the highlights and all the good stuff is somehow gone, you don't have anything left to live for. God's not just the God of yesterday. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. God has a plan. God has a future. And it's not the best days are behind us. It's just the days that are behind us are behind us. God has something great for His people and His kingdom, for Westside, for Davenport, for your life. He hasn't exhausted His resources or His blessings or His plans. Keep looking up. God is still on the throne. Objection number three. Gideon basically says, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, I'm insignificant, how can you possibly use me? God said, go in the strength you have and save Israel from the Midianites. 
And Gideon argues, because you have to understand the dynamic of this, Gideon is not known for his strength. As a matter of fact, Gideon says, I'm the weakest person in my clan. And my clan is the weakest family in my tribe. And my tribe has to split their inheritance with another tribe, so we're not even a full tribe. I'm the weakest of the weakest of the weakest. And you're telling me to go in my strength? What strength are you talking about? You got the wrong man? And God simply replies and says, I'll be with you. So Gideon wants a sign from the Lord because we come to know Gideon as a man that has difficulty latching on to the direct promise of God. And when God speaks to him face to face and tells him, then Gideon says to God, give me a sign and prove to me that what you're telling me is true. That's boldness. That's the kind of boldness that they described in Alabama as making a rabbit spit in a dog's eye. That's boldness. When you look God in the face and say, I doubt that you're telling me the truth, therefore show me a sign. That reasoning is so silly. You're getting it direct from God, but you'll believe a sign. So God said, okay, I'll, I'll prove it to you. Gideon says Gideon said, stay right here, don't move, I'll be back. And I don't know how long that the angel, the Lord, had to stay there, but think. Gideon went back to the house, he got a kid goat, he baked some bread. When somebody tells you, I'll be right back, and they go bake bread, this is not a fast process. And he boils the goat. Baking bread, boiling, he's cooking a meal. And he brings the meat back in a basket, and he brings the broth back that he boiled the goat in. Here he comes with the meat, the broth, the freshly baked bread. And the angel says, put the meat and the bread on the stone and pour the broth out. And then the stone turns into a, a jet of fire, and it burns up the sacrifice. And Gideon looks at that and says, it must be true. I mean, whatever it takes, you know. That impressed him. The angel that is talking to him meant nothing, but that impressed him. So Gideon says, I'll do it. Point number three, his correction. What he does is he starts to purge Israel of all the idolatry. His father has an altar to Baal, and an Asherah pole. And he goes down to the middle of the village where his father has put this altar. And in the middle of the night, he takes ten, myth, ten men with him on this mission because it still testifies to Gideon's cowardice. But ten men, and they, go with, and they tear down the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole. And when... The sun breaks in the morning, and the town notices the altar is destroyed. They have a fit. Who did this? Gideon, son of Joash, did it. And they said, well, they called for Gideon to be punished. Joash, Gideon's father, 
defends his son with some very clever logic. He says to the people in defense of Gideon, his son, he said, now, wait a minute. If Baal was a real God, I don't think they could have tore his altar down. Therefore, Baal must not be a real God. So they gave Gideon a nickname. And they called him Jerubael, which literally is translated, let Baal contend with him. They had a habit of nicknaming people in those days for things they did. So from then on, this is the man that Baal's going to have to deal with him. Baal can take care of himself. Number four, Gideon needed confirmation. Now Gideon is gathering an army, gaining a little confidence. And the Bible says he blows the trumpet and calls together 32,000 people for an army. And he's going to go out against the Midianites, the Malachites, and all the other people who are associated with them. They're camping. Uh, they've already crossed the Jordan. They're on their side. They're camping in the Valley of Jezreel. And here goes Gideon with the signs again. God whittles Gideon's army down from 32,000 to 300. Gideon just wants to know, just before I go, God, is, are you really going to give me this? Now, how many signs do you need? Do you need a sign for the sign? Or how, how many layers does this, go, does this go? So this is the famous story of Gideon's fleece. And uh, unfortunately, we have read this story and we, we don't do the kid goat and the broth and the bread so often, but we like the fleece. So that's become very common for us to practice putting a fleece before the Lord. And the problem with all the fleeces I've ever used before the Lord is if the first one doesn't work, I try a second one. I keep trying fleeces till I get the results I want. Which tells us that God didn't intend for the story of Gideon to be a paradigm an example for us to follow. So he puts the fleece before the Lord, and he, once again, God answers him according to his request because God was really indulging him at this point. And by the time he gets his army whittled down to 300 men, God tells Gideon, I'm going to give you this battle, but if you are still in doubt, take your servant and go down to the Midianite camp and listen to what they are saying in the Midianite camp. God, God knows what's going to transpire here. So Gideon gets his, his servant, Pura, and together in the darkness of night, they sneak down to the Midianite camp, and they get close enough they can hear conversations. They're just outside of the tent of a couple of men in the Midianite camp, and these men are sitting there talking, and one man says to the other, do you interpret dreams? Why do you ask? I had this really weird dream last night. What did you, what did you dream? He said, I, I, I fell asleep and I dreamed there was this loaf of barley bread that rolled down the hill and it hit our tent with such force that it turned the tent over and destroyed it and everything in it. And 
the man that heard the dream said, well, of course, anybody knows what that is. That's the sword of Gideon. We're just about to get pummeled by Gideon's army. Let's get out of here. Now, here's two interesting dynamics about this story. First of all, godless heathen Midianites hear God clearer than Gideon does. Number two, Gideon just got likened to a loaf of barley bread. And I'm not sure how complimentary that is. So Gideon has to go listen to the Midianites in order to be assured God is on his side. Gideon's got problems. He has issues, we say. And Gideon takes his army, goes against the Midianites. They, they self-destruct, and he obviously has a resounding victory. When he comes back to the camp, the people are so excited over this victory led by Gideon, they, they want to make him their leader. Moses is gone. Joshua is gone. They have no kings, and all they have is judges, but they have found a man that they like. Let's make Gideon our leader. And Gideon says something good, but does something bad. He says, I'm not going to be your leader. My son is not going to be your leader. And by extension and implication, my son's son is not going to be your leader. God is your leader. Now, for that, we applaud Gideon. 